Hey yo, Brent went to daughter, calls went to text, planes turned to drones, robotics in effect. Everybody using apps just to place a few bets. With media 2.0, what's coming next? Well, Simon Farnsworth, thanks very much for uh, for coming on New Media 2.0. I know you've got plenty on your plate, so really appreciate you for uh, giving us some of your time. Pleasure to be here, Chris. Nice to see you. I thought we could start by just maybe giving us an, an outline and for some of the viewers that, that aren't aware of, uh, of Discovery Inc., what it is you guys do and, uh, and what you've been working on there for the last couple of years. So um, Discovery Inc. is an American media business um, best known for the Discovery Channel, um, one of our flagship brands. But actually Discovery owns 520 TV channels globally. Um, a mix of brands from TLC to Animal Planet to ID. Um, and then we own quite a few free-to-air assets, uh, particularly in Europe. So we own probably the equivalent of Channel 7 uh, in the Nordic regions. Uh, we have some free-to-air assets in the UK, Germany. We own a sports business called Eurosport. Um, and over the past couple of years, we've really been focusing on how we kind of pivot all of that content into the streaming world. Uh, and that's only really been accelerated by the pandemic. We've seen over the past 12 months really accelerated that sort of consumer behavior. So we've launched our Discovery Plus product in about 10 markets globally. So US, UK, Nordics, um, India, Italy, Netherlands, Spain. Um, and really the focus is trying to accelerate that globally. Uh, and what kind of content and offering do we need to make that successful? And you managed to get the Olympic rights for what should have been 2020. And, uh, and now we think and hope it's going to be 2021. Maybe talk us through what that journey is like to be involved with, um, well, such an incredible event firstly, but, but something that's no doubt caused everyone to have to remain incredibly flexible throughout the organisation. Yeah, well, well, I think firstly, I think humanity needs something like the Olympics right now. Um, because I think it's just one of these amazing events that brings together people from all walks of life every four years. And you develop these, what I would call kind of four-year heroes who come from nowhere, who no one knew about, who just came from ordinary human backgrounds and have trained their backsides off to get it. And we're desperate for it to go ahead. But yeah, the last 12 months with regards to the Olympics has been interesting to say the least. Um, <laughs> Uh, last year, I remember being on a call in May and we were all umming and ahhing whether it was going to be cancelled. And literally, the lorry with all our camera gear, all our studio gear, all our production gear was literally pulling out the car park. Um, so we literally had to send a car to, to stop it, turn it around and come back because otherwise it would have been on a boat to Tokyo for eight weeks and then we wouldn't have seen it probably for three months by the time we got it turned around. So... So what we've had to do is essentially plan two Olympics in one because we've got Tokyo finishing in uh, August, but then Beijing Winter Olympic Games start in March. So we've literally had to plan a traveling circus that it kind of goes immediately from Tokyo to Beijing and then all of the kind of marketing and on-air plans and everything else that goes alongside of that um, and we really want to use the Olympics as a kind of a key tentpole for driving subscribers towards Discovery Plus and, and what we can do to en enhance that. So it's been a fascinating period. And then we've got the whole kind of COVID safety thing for all the staff laid on top, which 
is a challenge. And so for the Tokyo coverage this year, have you still got contingencies in place for what-ifs or, or, or potential changes, or have you got enough comfort now that it's going to go ahead in, in the time that you've been given? Um, well, we hope it goes ahead, but, yeah, we've, we've built in all kinds of contingencies and, and plan Bs. Um, I think the big change for us really is we were planning to send circa, say, 600 people to cover it, but now we're only going to say send 200 people purely out of a safety thing more than anything else. So we're doing way more production back in Europe. So we're bringing all the camera feeds, everything else back uh, to Europe, which is also a big cost-saving and a kind of innovative technology thing as well. But um, we're not sort of anticipating huge amount of access to athletes for mm. interviews and um, kind of that side of things. So we've developed this uh, really cool thing called the Cube Studio, which is almost like uh, sort of Dr. Spock teleportation, where we've got a load of green screen studios dotted around Europe. So we'll be able to bring friends, family into those and hopefully have a green screen in studio and that it can give the impression that those people are talking to each other uh, in a green screen with cool kind of graphics and TV around. It's amazing what technology can do to, to really enhance that. Um, but so when you talk about those, say, 600 people that were going to go, and now that's 200 and the, the technological innovation to accommodate that, do you see once COVID normal is a, a thing, which we, we hope it will be, do you go back to sending 600 people at the next Olympics or do you think that cost base has now changed permanently? I think it has to change permanently, yeah. uh, Chris, to be honest, because if, if, if you look at the sports rights ecosystem, I think it's kind of steadied in terms of the inflation of sports rights, but it's still at such a cost base that you kind of got to make the economics work. And thankfully, we started our investment back in 2018 after the last Pyeongchang Winter Games, where we invested a lot of money in building out these kind of IP remote production ecosystems. So we've got um, kind of two massive data centers in Europe where all this content comes in and then it kind of distributes out to 15 production sites all across Europe with commentary booths and we've even developed our own kind of remote commentary app so we could even get you commentating from australia we just give you an application on a laptop we can stream the content to you you voice it it comes back to us we then kind of marry the the timing up um and that's a big thing for the olympics in particular because you've got up to I think 39 simultaneous events at one time. And when you're covering that in 28 languages, that's a lot of commentators mm. that you need. And to build that kind of infrastructure just once for every two years, it just doesn't make economical sense. I think some traditional TV people used to be very particular about the quality of the product that went out and every single bit of vision and audio had to be almost cinema grade. I think what people have learned, well, from my perspective anyway, is the consumer's not as fussy about the quality of the vision or the audio always, particularly if they can get access that feels real or sort of behind the scenes or vision that other people can't get. Do you think that's a, um, is that a take that you agree with? And, and what are the sort of things that you can't compromise and what are the, some of the things that you potentially can? I think we're aiming for, for top quality vision and audio because i think technology can deliver it now and can deliver it at a price point that kind of 
makes sense. But I think for certain things that people are interested in, like, for example, you look at all the Olympic sports and you go, okay, canoeing doesn't get much coverage outside of the Olympics. So would a, a serious canoeing fan accept a degraded vision? Of course they would, because they're into it. Mountain biking may be the same, although cycling over the past six to eight years has really taken off, right? Yeah. Um, but I think we're aiming to do that. And I think one of the challenges with, say, traditional TV and something like 4K is that it's really expensive to cover and distribute because you've got to pay for big satellite transponders, whereas actually over the internet, if you've got decent internet connectivity, you can deliver that experience. So we're doing a 4K, uh, what we call pop-up channel for the Olympics, and, and we're going to distribute that on our digital product because it's it's a differentiator as well. It's something different to what, say, mainstream TV can do. But I, th I think it's a mix of both. I think if you can deliver the best quality, you'll actually aim to do that. Do you feel that you can catch up to, you know, feel the cost base of legacy media stations or even you see it with traditional banks as well when you compare it to fintech in banking or some of the media businesses that started in this digital era their cost bases are just so different do you feel you can ever get your cost base down rapidly enough to really compete or is it sort of a never-ending struggle to to compete against those companies that were born if you like in in this lower cost based digital era i think it's it's a it's a multifaceted question in in terms of the response because it's just different right because you see the fintech world and stuff that they're prepared to go maybe five six years losing money before they make a profit mm. whereas the differentiator with traditional businesses is hopefully they're coming from profitability and pivoting to new distribution methods because fintechs and stuff like that is um, kind of mostly software driven really isn't it it's, it's software development so it's a, it's a different and what they're trying to do is build their brand um, in those spaces whereas legacy companies have good brands it's whether they can make the turn and they're going to need the kind of cash flow from traditional businesses to make that turn so we I mean we now have a permanent transformation office uh, at work constantly looking at our cost base like what can we do and and that really comes down to which areas you want to invest in and which areas you want to pull back in like are we going to spend uh, a truckload of money investing in new technology just for linear television probably not mm. uh, is the honest answer but is that traditional tv business really important to us yes it is because it's still generating a lot of the financials albeit we do understand that that may have a limited road and ultimately that road is driven by the consumer uh, and how the consumer consumes products what we are seeing is terrific engagement on our digital products vis-a-vis -vis traditional products i mean the amount of time that people spend in them um, is very different and actually for us Traditionally, we've been in the pay TV space, so we've been limited, say, by the amount of subscribers that Foxtel have um, or the amount of subscribers that Sky has, whereas we see a massive opportunity. I think there was something yesterday that said that is there now over 20 billion connected devices globally, whereas if 
pay TV ecosystem, you were maybe at the billion mark, you can go, whoa, there's a huge opportunity to engage with those people that maybe hadn't traditionally engaged with our content. Uh, and what more can we do to service those people? And, and how do we get to those people? And a JV with Snapchat for the Olympics is something uh, I don't think would have been done before. Maybe talk to me about what that, that partnership looks like and uh, how those sort of deals will continue to, to evolve as, as, uh, as, as media companies look to innovate and grow their audience. In simplicity, it's almost about audience segmentation because traditional pay TV subscribers, you might be kind of 40 plus, whereas Snap has a much younger audience. And it, it, we took a, a strong obligation with the ISC to try and engage every audience. So, um, and Snap has got a great brand. It's like, what can we do to marry those brands together to create, I know it's an overused term, the, the win-win scenario. So we're producing two shows a day uh, for Snap in English, German, I'm looking at my notes here, Spanish, Italian, uh, and French, um, as well as we're creating kind of road to Tokyo um, content, i.e., so you, Chris Judd, you suddenly turned from an AFL athlete to amazing cyclist and what a story and we can develop that and help build up our brands because we think Snap not only will people watch there, it's a mechanism for people to drive audience to our platforms and applications. Um, so I think it's really exciting. And yes, um, it might not have been done four years ago well I, I know that it wasn't done four years ago because this is our first summer games but for example in Beijing we engage with Facebook as well who would have thought that and talk to me about remote le- uh, remote work this year you, you obviously living in in London now which is still in uh well pretty much lockdown I, I know we spoke off air before and the kids are now back at school but outside of that it's still very much in lockdown have you managed a, a really sizable workforce? I think there's a couple of thousand employees under your watch. Have you managed to, to stay in touch with that remote workforce? What have been some of the challenges and, and some of the learnings from the last 12 months? Oh, crikey, it's been a real challenge. First thing was kind of like, is everyone safe, right? And a lot of our facilities are what we call big kind of tech-anchored where you've got a big studio that needs strong permanent connectivity or stuff like that. How do we keep the people still going in safe? Uh, And we've managed to do that successfully. I think everybody has stayed safe. Yes, we have had instances of COVID uh, like everyone else. Um, We've had to work really, really hard at communication um, and making sure that we're talking to our employees all the time so for example when the lockdown first happened our ceo maybe did a global town hall once a quarter we were doing them every week right this is what the company's doing we got for example the 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 chairman of goldman sachs to come and talk to us say right what are they doing we got the uh, chairman of imax cinemas okay that that was a completely disrupted business what can we do and learn from Uh, other businesses we we were lucky in terms of our it infrastructure that almost every employee had a laptop so we could say right everyone had vpn right just go home um we've worked and invested really hard in mental health um and mental health awareness and mental health training because a lot of people have struggled um 
And we've, interestingly, when you look at the people who struggled, it's been a lot of the younger folks who are maybe in um, kind of flat share type arrangements uh, or who young single parents who lived in inner city accommodation with two kids and both both working and so we've we've worked really hard to accommodate all of that and invest in that to keep our, our business safe but we've also learned a lot that the business can survive looking out in the workforce in 10 15 20 years time with the the growth of of ai and and some of the new technologies that are around which are are going to eradicate so many of the current day jobs we see today. Are you in the school of thought that it'll be same, the same as the IT revolution where computers came along and, um, you know, people who typed for a living were, were moved on and various other jobs, but plenty of new jobs were created? Or do you think there will be a difference to, to AI and we are going to see a, um, a, a great reduction in jobs compared to, to what our economy has been used to? I think if... If you look back in history through the industrial revolution through to the um, IT revolution, never underestimate humans and their ingenuity to to find a way. Uh, I just think jobs are going to change. I don't think huge amounts uh, of jobs will fall off. And I think you're already seeing humans find a way like for example in in certain countries that they're trialing kind of four day weeks Mm. to deal with that but they get paid the same amount of money and you kind of go wow that's pretty cool lifestyle right it's that would be great i think ai and ml has an amazing i mean it's amazing future in terms of what i was just reading this morning that the chief executive amazon studios is talking about this thing called t-commerce where they're using AI and ML to uh, image recognition. So we're looking at you now and you've got that bike in, in uh, behind you is something could pop up and say, they've spotted that bike. Do you want to buy that bike? Hmm. Um, so I think, and that will generate jobs because you're going to need more bikes. There's already a global shortage of bikes in the world. By the way, I tried to buy my son. <laughs> buy one. But I think um, humans will find a way. And if, if you look at history of our own countries, and when I was in Australia four years ago, there was a lot of chat about the um, General Motors plant, which is down in South Australia, that was going to move to China, I think. Huge furor about jobs and where would those jobs go? But people have found jobs, right? Um, humans find a way, and it's not... It's always kind of more of an evolutionary process than a revolutionary process. But I'm a massive believer in AI and ML. I think it can do amazing things. And we're looking at a lot at work at the moment as to what we can do with it. And we already are using it in a lot of circumstances. What's some of the AI tech you're seeing that's going to really influence your business or or some of the media businesses you're involved with? I think certainly the... I mean, a lot of the questions around big data at the moment and... Mm which I personally hate as a, as a term because I just think it, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, trying to, it's like trying to explain the cloud to your grandfather. It's like, oh, geez, where do you start? Big data. Um, we're using it a lot in terms of uh, image recognition uh, and speech-to-text in, in terms of running our content through that and what can we glean from that 
we have a lot of motor shows in the US. So if we see a Ford Mustang 1964, can a Ford interested in advertising against that? We wouldn't have, and we could say very clearly, right, the Mustang's on four minutes, 30 seconds, dot one four, because it's clearly um, pointed towards that. And then in terms of gleaning that, once we know from you maybe analyzing your Twitter feed because you've allowed us to accept cookies that you're a Ford driver. How can we start pushing shows uh, to you? Um, and then also in the kind of whole supply chain now, we're using AI ML to say, right, this piece of content is used a lot. So we put it in really quick uh, cloud storage or it's not used a lot so we put it in deep storage which is a lot cheaper so we're, we're using it both on the consumer end and the supply chain to really manage our cost base but also hopefully generate revenue and then I think we're also um, in our golf product at the moment we're in a golf tv product about using AI and ML to create clips so we know Chris Judd that you're a uh, Tiger Woods is a bad, bad analogy right now because bless him, he's had a horrific accident. Say you're a Rory McIlroy fan um, and you just want to see clips of Rory's iron shots. We know that this is an iron shot. So we know you want five minutes of clips, let's push it to you. Um, whereas historically that would have created a human in an edit suite to generate that type of content. It's very labor intensive. It's very infrastructure intensive from a capital perspective so i think there's um some cool stuff there and we actually used similar technology on the io actually to, to generate more content and i, I know you've had a, a bit of a history in sports rights in australia did you have some st involvement with the afl in your your previous working life yeah i did actually um uh i worked for a company called um Globecast Australia that eventually got sold to, to, to Telstra and we actually developed the um, uh, what, what do you call is it the umpire that sits by the goalpost what's he called in AFL the goal umpire yeah the goal umpire so we, yeah. we developed the, the cameras uh, on the oh. goal umpire and then also on the the, the, the ref um, we create some image stabilisation Um so yeah, we quite uh, quite involved in it and, and loved it. Were you involved in the Telstra deal for the the digital rights with the AFL? Or this was predating. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't involved in the Telstra Telstra rights deal. But um, I think the AFL is uh, it's a really interesting thing in Australia, isn't it? Because it's it it almost it's one of those sports that almost transcends sports and almost becomes religion. Because mm. I think like what blew me away was the amount of members that the AFL clubs had and how committed those members were going to the games. Uh, and like the MCG you used to, I mean, it's nearly 100,000 capacity and you'd get like 70, 80,000 to a game that really only Victorians were, <laughs> were interested in. Don't get me wrong, the, the AFL have done a lot of work now to move it up to the Gold Coast, move to Sydney, and I think there's even work in the northern territories to, to develop the game now and move the game to china when i was there so there's a lot of effort to grow the game globally but uh, it was a fascinating proposition it's an incredible rights deal they've been able to to eke out from the the major tv stations and, and fox cell and, and telstra as we mentioned 
how do you think those rights deals are going to evolve for, for sporting groups like the AFL going forward? I think it's really interesting what's going on in the in in the global rights space at the moment, and not just. And I'm not being disparaging to AFL, but a lot of rights owners now are looking for longer term deals. Where historically you maybe had your three year deals where you got 40, 50 percent inflation rights term on rights term, looking for longer term deals now, which really gives them the what sort of time frames longer term. So we, we, we signed our PGA deal, for example, for 12 years. Wow. Now, historically, three-year deals would have been it on a kind of global territory-by-territory basis. But I think if you're looking to build brands as you move into the streaming world, um, and it's interesting in Australia because kind of Stan have gone into rugby now, haven't they? Yes. Into rugby union. Um, Telstra historically was a big NRL partner and AFL partner, actually, weren't they? They, they bought digital rights there. Of looking at long-term, so you can build your brand again, build the two brands together, actually, because three years is tough, right? It's like... Just too risky to invest in shows or new talent or new ideas if you're not going to be able to milk it for, for long, yeah, a couple of years. You need to be able to build that brand over a long-term and, like, kind of... Historically, you do your rights deal maybe two years out before you start, but you're not going to know the real performance of that until you say you go through a season and you you tweak your coverage or you tweak your marketing plans, then you implement in the second year. And then you kind of like, oh, God, we've spent a truckload of money in two years and now we're already in renewal talks and they want 50% more than they had. That's hard. Like, it's hard. I mean, there's a reason why, say, Sky in the UK took them 12 years to become profitable. Um, and it was one of the things that was attractive to us about the Olympics is because we we had the Olympics over a span of eight years. So it allowed us to build that brand um, over a long period of time on some of the cycling deals that we've recently done a long-term, longer-term deals, which allows us to invest properly in the sport. Um, because what we all must be conscious of is when you're looking at investing in sport, you have to ensure that some of that money's thrown through to the grassroots because you need the next generation of Chris Judds or the next generation of um, Bradley Wiggins or the next generation of Steve Smiths coming through. And that needs investment to, to keep the levels of performance at the same or, or get better and better. Because if you're not investing, not promoting sports to that wider audience it's tough uh, and i think particularly as in the digital age is pay tv historically was kind of aimed uh, at wealthy individuals because i mean it's i can't remember what my foxtel subscription was and it was like 100 bucks a month i think mm. and that was five years ago whereas you you need the kids to watch the sports because sports is all about icons and heroes and it's about um I know your son, if he's, God forbid, in your family, an NRL player, is like, how does he become the next Anthony Minicello? Or what? He was a star when I was there. But what are those icons? You've got to have the kids watching it. Mm. So you've got to allow yourself the ability to have it at a price point and a longevity that allows those kids to come through and 
to grow the sport. Whereas these short-term rights deals, it's tough. It's tough. I, I think a lot of sporting bodies at the minute around the globe too are, are wrestling with the idea of becoming vertically integrated themselves and becoming sporting bodies and media organisations and doing lots of different things. And then you look over in the States in particular, some of the sporting bodies and clubs over there, they outsource everything from merchandise to media. They, they, you know, we've been talking a lot about cost base, but they keep their cost base really lean, focus on their knitting, uh, make sure their brand is strong and then outsource everything else. Do you have a view which is the most productive road for a, a sporting body to take in, in terms of that? I mean, um, the obvious answer would be that, um, and I'll sort of say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, but a sports body doing its own streaming direct-to-consumer, that's tough for them, right? Because yeah. it's um, you're not going to get the same economics as you would um, taking a rights deal. I think we can learn an awful lot from the US side of things as to how they really engage fans like they're creating content through the week from the training grounds to interviews their stadium experience is it's just amazing now you can have applications where you get drinks and hot dogs delivered to you to your seat and then you look at the super bowl and the halftime show the entertainment factor that's it's, it sort of almost transcends the sport it's about entertaining so I think we can learn a lot from that in, in terms of like properties like the AFL, that fan base is like gold, right? Is how do you kind of really milk that fan base and ensure that those organizations or, or consumers are engaged the whole time? So were you, I'm going to offend you now, were you a Collingwood guy or a Richmond guy? You, you played in Perth, didn't you? For I played for West Coast, then I played for Carlton. Yeah. Carlton, that was it. Carlton the Tigers. There you go. No, Carlton no, no. Blues. The Carlton Blues. It's for Richmond yeah. Tigers. Really am offending you now. <laughs> uh, but um, I've, I follow Collingwood a little bit and they, they do a lot through the week of ancillary content and stuff like that of engaging. But in terms of merchandising and things like that, is should Carlton become a manufacturing of mer- merchandise? I'd say that's. Seems a bit crazy, really. Like it's stick to knitting, build, build great teams, great organisations, engage the fans as much as you can. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for that. There's a bit of noise that you know sports is really losing a a, a couple of its fan bases, if you like. There's a, a view that young men aren't watching or participating in sport nearly as much as they were, as they're attracted more and more to to video games and, and esports. And then perhaps some of the older generation that, um, you know, lived in a, a less politically correct world and, and really wanted sport to be an escape from a lot of the political correctness they're dealing with in their everyday work life are starting to be turned off by the political views that, that many sporting bodies take. Do you think that's overblown or do you think there is a, a, the potential that in 20 or 30 years traditional sports don't play nearly as big a role as they have in, um, you know, for for many people over the last couple of generations? Oh, what a question. Firstly, politically, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm not well-versed enough in politics to really understand, but I know there's been a lot of politics in the US, particularly, say, with BLM and Colin Kupernik, I think it was the guy that... Colin Kaepernick, um, yeah. 
and him, which had a profound effect on society as a whole. And you kind of go, well, if sports wasn't there, would would these issues of race be raised within society? And like racism as a whole, um, which is just awful and all of us should be anti-racist. I, I remember when I was in Australia, there was some racism when, uh, around the Aboriginal um, uh, AFL players. I can't remember what the guy's name was. Adam Goods, I think it would have been. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the guy. Did he play for Sydney? He was um, at Swans, yeah. Sydney Swans. And that brought that out in society. So you can't go, well, sport has such a powerful place within society to bring out issues because everybody's very passionate about it i think interestingly when probably you and i grew up the bulk of the sports was on free-to-air television like cricket was on channel nine afl was on channel seven so it was free so people would spend more time and then the pay tv businesses came along really driven by mr murdoch who realized that okay i can make a large amount of money by it. If I buy this and charge a subscription, people will still pay. But then has that subscription become too expensive? And is the streaming world, I mean, I look at our own streaming product and say it's $7.99 a month compared to what it was. You go, wow, that theory, we should generate more viewers and more eyeballs. And there's an onus on us all as sports fans and sports um, broadcasters to try and attract those fans. I don't think sports ever going to go away. Um, and I think there's a lot of onus on sports governing bodies to invest in that grassroots, to get kids playing sport. And I think the health benefits of sport have to come out and play an enormous role because you have to say that playing sport vis-a-vis -a, um, a video gaming is much healthier, but can the two live harmoniously maybe they can like maybe you can use gaming as a way to promote sports and health benefits because we, we're going to i mean if anything the last 12 months has taught us is that we're going to need to focus on our health in the future i mean the pandemic has just put the mockers on everyone i would suspect every government in the world will be investing more in in healthcare mm. in the next 24 months than they did say two years ago could you ever see a world where I, I just have this view where there'll be hybrid games of, of you know, athletes competing against almost machines? Um, I mean, it's clearly not for a long time down in the future, but could you see emerging between the two, the two worlds, the sort of electronic digital world and, and traditional sports? Are you seeing any sort of fusion products that you see could be interesting in 10 to 20 years' time? Well, I think it's already happening, right, isn't it, in... Um... If you look at Formula One, you've seen Lewis Hamilton um, race against the, the top digital racer on uh, an Xbox or even in a, a simulated game. So I think some of it's already happening. I think you could see it in golf, for example, in those virtual golf simulators. Some of the golfers have had a go. So I think, again, there's, yeah, why, why not? Um, I think it would be fascinating and a great way to engage consumers if that's what consumers want and at the end of the day we will be led by the consumer yeah yep well i uh i'll let you go i wish you a lot of luck with the olympics coming up by uh i think you're very right when you say the world needs it because um oh, it's been a really tough 12 months for um 
I mean, at a small level, people in Australia, what people in in Europe have gone through in America is has just been um has been unprecedented, which was the word of the year. But uh, sounds like it's turning a bit of a corner over there, and can't wait to tune in and uh, and watch the Olympics later on this year. Good luck with it all. Thanks, Chris. If you're enjoying New Media 2.0, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.